0: It's so good to be here with my folks in Noblesville today. The Carmel Campus says hello, and it really is cool to be a part of a church family. No matter which campus you're at, you feel at home. I feel at home today. It's really good to be here with you. Um, Funny thing about that song we just heard, this is a true story, and I don't know if he's in the room. Joel, are you in the room? He's sitting right in the back middle. That little summer of love, that's Joel's voice. He added that in for all of you so we didn't just have to listen to music. He wanted us to hear his falsetto. So Joel, so well done, so impressive. There it is. He's doing this in the back. So be sure to tell him thank you for that. Could have been a little better, but that was pretty good. Probably like a 6 out of 10. So love you, buddy. Love you. Hey, uh, this is a really exciting week for us. We are sending a record number of middle school students across our two campus and leaders to Marion, Indiana, for the mix conference, we sent a busload a week ago or two weeks ago. And so, if you are one of those students or leaders, can you stand? We're pr- doing this at both campuses today. We're praying over students and leaders today. So go ahead and stand up. Let's give these guys a hand, and let's uh, let's take a moment to pray for them. Keep standing. We're going to pray for you. In fact, if you're near them, just place a hand out. We're going to pray for them. Father in heaven, we thank you for a church family that continues to grow with young families from babies up to seniors in high school and beyond. We're thankful uh, for Genesis Church and we're thankful that the next generation is, is strong and active in their faith. And so we were thankful for all the high schoolers that went a few weeks ago and they came back excited to talk about what they've learned about you. And we're so excited for these middle schoolers and the leaders that you've provided. We pray for this next week that they would have a lot of fun. We pray that On occasion, they would text their parents so their parents know that they're having a good time, that they're okay. But I pray that you would open their hearts and minds up to who you are, that they would see you, they would hear you, they would experience you in new ways. And that when they would come home, that their parents and and the spouses of the leaders would say, man, something special happened because you're different. Jesus, I pray that you would mark their life this week in some really exciting ways. We love you, and it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Real quick, last thing before we jump into today's message, I want to let you know how much we're going to miss this guy over here, Jose Torres and his wife, Leanne. Let's give them a hand. Stand up. Go ahead. Stand up. Go ahead. I know you got a couple more weeks. This guy's done a phenomenal job of building a student ministry across two campuses. We're certainly benefiting from his work at the Carmel campus as well. And so we're gonna miss you guys for sure. But Matt Wheeler, the guy that we've hired to replace Jose is an incredible guy. And so I want you to know while we grieve Jose moving on and I'm really excited what you're doing to be with your family, get to know Matt. My kids came home from from MOVE a few weeks ago and they're like, man, Matt's a great guy. And so the Lord just continues to bless us here with some great people that pour into the life of the next generation. So I wanted to share that with you this morning. So a few weeks ago, my wife, Casey, and I, it's a Saturday morning, about 10 o'clock, beautiful morning. We're on our back porch, sitting in the shade, swinging in our hammock chairs, one of our favorite places to be. We had nothing planned for the day. And so we're swinging there. And I don't know why, but for some reason, these words came out of my mouth. I said, I'm bored. Now, I wasn't like saying I'm bored. I need something to do. I'm like, I'm bored. I got a whole day ahead of me. And my wife Who I love my very best friend in life we've been married for 21 years in just a few weeks she knows me better than anybody she can speak truth to me she can encourage me like no one else the moment the word bored came out of my mouth she said oh good you can fix the the storm door today and I was like oh dang it I didn't mean I was that kind of bored and that's when I learned kids A very very valuable lesson. Sometimes it's just better to keep your thoughts on the inside instead of sharing them with the people that you love the most because they can hurt you the most. She was right. We had been needing to take this storm door down forever. And so I got all my tools together, and I started to take it apart. Now there were like 12 screws that were holding it in, and it was going to be a real easy job just to unscrew those, except that I realized the moment that I got started, all of the screws basically looked similar to this. Completely, I mean like stripped out. I looked at them, and I was like, oh, this is bad. Let's go to the next one. I think that might be worse. All the way around. And so I realized I had to be really, really careful as I was unscrewing this thing. And the whole time I was doing it, I was gritting my teeth like, who's the idiot that did this? Well, that was also me. I installed the door. So I had no one to be mad at but myself. I thought about suing the screw makers because they were slightly more firm than warm butter when I put them in. I mean, these things were the worst. But thankfully, I got all of them out. And I I had this thought. Like, clearly, my superhuman strength wasn't the problem. That's not what caused those screws to be stripped out. The problem, as I've learned over and over and over again, is I don't do well with limits and limitations. I don't know when to stop. I just keep going. I work harder. And, like, the same thing that I'll do with the screw and strip it out, well, I'll do that with relationships. I'll do that with work. I will just go and go and go until I cause some pretty serious damage. And I bet I'm not the only one. That does that. This is true with lots of different aspects in our life. And so, for the last few weeks, we've been in this series that we're calling The Summer of Love, and we're talking about different aspects of God's love. And today, I want to help you discover or rediscover a very important aspect of God's love. And it begins with this simple idea I want us to think about what it looks like to learn to embrace our limits so we can rest in the work that God's already done for us. This is a part of understanding who God is. We have to learn to embrace our physical limits so we can rest in the work that he's already done for us. And the teaching that I'm gonna share with you today, I learned from a guy named Marty Solomon a few weeks ago. If you're looking for a good podcast, download this. It's called the BEMA podcast, B-E-M-A. Excellent teaching. Marty is a Jewish Christian and he gives insight into the Old Testament in, in the Hebrew in ways that just will blow your mind. And when I heard this podcast several weeks ago, I thought this is what I wanna teach on this summer because it's valuable to me and I know it's gonna be valuable to you as well. And here's what I've discovered. This problem that we have with tension in our life and not knowing our limits, well, it's been around since the beginning of creation. And what we're gonna see is that God in his word has addressed this for us in the very first book the very first words of scripture. So if you have a Bible, I wanna invite you to turn right now to Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one. What we're gonna see is in his divine wisdom, God addresses this issue of limits. Now Genesis chapter one, verse one, begins just like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So right away, the very first words of the Bible, the writer tells us, reveals this profound mystery that God is the creator not just of the world, but of everything, everywhere. And some of us, we wanna try to put a timestamp on that. We wanna try to say, well, this is exactly how I did it and it was in this number of days in this order. Well, I think it's even more mysterious than that. I think the point that the writer wants us to see is that God created it all. And if you keep reading, and through the rest of Genesis 1, what you discover is he didn't just create, he spoke things into existence. He said it and it happened. So he didn't have to go to Menards and get everything together like, oh, I'm going to need this to do that. When God spoke, molecules and atoms and atomic gases that didn't exist all of a sudden exist And creation became a reality on that day. And if you've been around church, you've probably heard this story before. You're familiar with this teaching. But here's something that you might not know about Genesis 1. It's not just a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's actually a poem. And like any good poem, it has some rhythms and it has some refrains, but this poem is meant to teach us about the nature of who God is and how much he loves and values us. Let me show you some of the refrains that you find in this poem. One of the refrains happens at the end of every day. It'll say, God said, and he's It speaks things into existence. And at the end of every day, it says, And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And then God said, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And so you see this repeated over and over again in this poem. It has rhythms and refrains, but it also has a structure. It was written and structured in a certain way. And the structure is known as a chiasm. And a chiasm is a literary tool that writers use to help readers discover the big idea that they're trying to make. Now, chiasms are found all throughout scripture. In the Psalms, I'm reading in the New Testament right now, I'm reading the Beatitudes, the very first thing that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm convinced it's a chiasm. There's a structure to it. And and a lot of times there's this mirroring pattern where chiasms tend to look like this. They'll either look like a diamond or an hourglass and they point your attention towards this center point of the poem. And the creation poem found in Genesis one, isn't just a story about how God created everything. It's actually a well-designed piece of literature that is meant to tell us something specific about who God is and how much he values us. Let me show you what I mean. If you look at the first few days of creation, this is what you'll find. Day one, two, and three, you'll find that God is forming creation. He's giving it shape. And then in days four, five, and six, he's filling what he just formed. And on day seven, he rests. So if you take this poem and you fold it in on itself, it has a center point. And so if there's seven days of creation, where would you expect the center point to be? You would expect it to be somewhere around day... Three or four, right? Now, here's a serious question. Are you ready to have your minds blown? What I'm going to share with you might melt your face off. I remember hearing this for the first time, and I was like, no way. This is so amazing. According to Marty Solomon of of Bama Discipleship, if you physically count all of the Hebrew words in the creation poem in Genesis 1 and into Genesis 2 you discover there's one single Hebrew word at the very center of the poem, and it's this Hebrew word, moed. Everybody say that with me, moed. Moed, you get one credit hour of Hebrew right there because you learned a new word today, moed, and it's found right where you would expect to find it. In Genesis 1.14, in day four, we read this, and God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark the moed, the sacred times or the seasons. But here's what's really interesting about this word, moed. It's one of four words that's also translated as Sabbaths, festivals, parties, and resting. Now let's put all all these pieces together. The writings of the Old Testament. Record for us the history of the Jewish people, the Israelites. And have you ever noticed that Sabbath is a really big deal in the Old Testament for the Jews? Have you ever wondered why? Why is Sabbath such a big deal for them? Well, from an Old Testament Hebrew perspective, it's because their sacred writings begin with this creation poem that has everything to do with Sabbath. And so, yes, Genesis 1 is meant to teach us about how God created the heavens and the earth. I'm not taking away from that. But there's actually something else that the writer of Genesis wants us to see. And it's that God has revealed a sacred rhythm of life that's meant to help us understand, again, the nature of who God is and how much he loves and values us as his creation. So let me give you some examples. If you go back to Genesis 1, chapter 2, at the beginning of day 1 before God does anything with creation, we read this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And so right away we see in Genesis 1 chapter 2 at the beginning of day 1, the earth was filled with nothingness. There was nothing. Now, if you fast forward and you go to day 7 of the creation poem found in Genesis chapter 2 verses 1 through 3, we read this. The heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, God rested from all of his work. Verse 3, then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Here's the point. Day one begins with the earth being filled with nothingness. Day seven, God rests. He does nothing. And in the middle, there's this word, this Moed word, which means to rest. So again, let's put all these pieces together. Why is this important? Why does this matter to me and you? Well, I want you to think of it like this. Who would have been the very first people to hear this creation poem after it had been written down? Who would it have been? Hebrew tradition teaches us that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so, Moses, if you, in case you forgot who Moses is, he is the guy that God called and equipped to lead the Israelites out of their slavery in the land of Egypt, to take them to the promised land. And the book of Exodus tells us that the Israelites had been enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years, and they had a really specific job that they were doing in, in Egypt. For 400 years, they built bricks. This is a brick that my kids made out of Legos. They made it in no time. They had fun doing it. I promise you, the Israelites did not have fun building their bricks. So for 400 years, they were building bricks, building bricks, building bricks. No break. They never got a break. For 400 years, all they did was stack these bricks and build these bricks because that's what they had to do. They were told that their value was in how many bricks they could produce. But now that God is leading them out of slavery and into a new life, the very first lesson he wants them to learn in this creation poem is how to moed with him, how to rest with him, how to Sabbath in him. Because they had been told, oh, this is your your value. God says, this isn't your value. You're valuable because I created you with value. And he actually expresses that in the creation poem. On day six, in Genesis one twenty-six, after God's created everything else, the last thing God creates is man and woman and his image and likeness. And this was such a big deal that in Genesis one thirty-one, at the end of day six, we read this. God saw that all, all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, when day one ends, God says it's good. Day two, it's good. Day three, it's good. Day four, it's good. Day five, it's good. Day six, after creating man and woman in his image and likeness, God says, oh, this, this is very, very good. And then what does he do next on day seven? He rests. Now, did God rest because he was tired? Did God rest because he was out of creativity? Did God rest because he was like, now this is your all's problem, you all figure it out? Well, none of those things are true about God. God rested because he wanted mankind to learn something really important. He created man and woman to work in his place. But before he released them to do the work that he had created them to do, he set aside an entire day before they did anything to rest with him. That's pretty fascinating, right? And you might be thinking, well, that's cool. That's good to know. But I'm an American, Jerry. We celebrated our independence a week ago. I've never been enslaved to the Egyptians. I've never been forced to build bricks. I'm free. And I realize that that's true in a lot of ways, but here's what you might not realize. We live in a world, we live in a culture that wants us to believe that we're playing out our own Egyptian narrative. We're told that our value is in what we produce. Let me give you an example. How many of you students have been told that your GPA is really important? You've been told this before? Oh, you've got to have a good GPA. Like, your GPA is going to set you apart. Because if your GPA is good, well, then the colleges are really going to want to look at you. And if you have a good GPA, just pretend that this brick right here says school. I couldn't fit the word school on a brick that you all could read. So this one says school. And if you have a good GPA, well, now you can get into a good school. And that's prestigious in and of itself because that matters, right? You walk around, oh, I went to such and such school. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a big deal. and Well, that's going to set you up with some different social networks because if you can fit in with the right people, people are going to believe good things about you. Whether they're true or not, you can fool them because this really matters and we're building all these bricks. And that leads to, oh man, if you can, all this works together, you can get a good job. You can get a career. How many of us are tempted to define ourselves by our career? This is what, this is who I am. This is what I do. And I want people to think I am a big deal because of this particular brick. And if I get this brick right, this is a good one, lifestyle. Because I can, I can wear things and drive things and live in things and live in places that people will assume certain things about me. Because, oh, I have made it. And we're just building these bricks, building these bricks. And here's one. Anybody building this brick? Anybody chasing after this brick? How many of you are trying to build up your 401K? Or, or if, if I can have more of this, I can feel really good about myself. Because the more I have, the more I'm worth. The more I'm worth, the better I feel. The more power and prestige and influence I have, and we're just, we're just building brick upon brick upon brick. This, this is the world we live in, my friends. So yeah, you're not enslaved in Egypt, but we are enslaved to a world that says this determines your value and your worth. But God has something bigger. God has something better for us. And this... Understanding this and seeing this is why it's important for us to see and understand why Sabbath rest is so critical for us as followers of Jesus. Because while the creation poem of Genesis 1 does teach us that God created everything in the cosmos, there's also an underlying theme that God has created you with value. And he wants us to learn to rest in him first so that we can work with him later. Rest with him first... This is is the whole point behind the creation thing. Rest in him first so you can work with God later. But the problem is we have thrown that out the window. We don't even think about like resting in God. Who has time to rest in God? Because we've got all these other things that we have to do. We've turned God's sacred rhythm and we've, we've turned it upside down completely. Let me give you a quick example. If you read through the creation poem of Genesis 1, we talked about this earlier, the rhythm and refrain. At the end of every day, there's a phrase, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, and there was evening and morning the second day, and evening and morning the third day. Does that sound weird to you, evening and morning? How many of you measure your days that way? We're the opposite. There was morning and there was evening. We wake up and we go and we collapse on the pillow, and there was Monday, and we collapse on the pillow and there was Tuesday. So who's getting it right? God is the creator, or us is the creation that have flipped it. I think it's safe to say if God created the rhythm, we should listen. We should pay attention to what God is doing. And so why would God create in this creation poem, evening first and then morning? It's because he wants us to see, he wants us to physically rest with him first before we do anything else, because our value is in him. He's He's been accomplishing things without us forever. And he will continue to do it forever. He invites us, rest with me first, and then we can go work together. Resting in God first teaches us that he's the source of everything that we need. And learning to rest in God first teaches us that we're not valuable because of what we produce. We are valuable because he says we are. We are created in his image, in his likeness. In his book, The Emotionally Healthy Leader, pastor and author Pete Scazzaro points out that God's sacred rhythm looks like this. Sabbath and work and Sabbath and work and Sabbath and work and Sabbath and work. Like They counterbalance each other. Both are good, but you'll notice which one comes first. Our secular rhythm is this. Work, 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 work. Half day Friday, vacation. Work, 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 work. Casual Friday, those are fun. Vacation. Now, which one of those do you think is more sustainable? Which one of those sounds more life-giving? Can you see why God's, this idea of Sabbath rest is a gift to us. Can you see how this is God expressing his love for us? And I gotta be honest with you. If I have to convince you of this at this point, I don't know what else to say. I mean, it's right there in his word. You need to take it up with him. But here is my challenge. It brings up some really good questions. Like what does it look like to incorporate this rhythm in our life, at this stage in life? Is it even possible? Where do I begin? And and how do I know if I'm getting it right? I think those are really good questions. But I think to answer the question, let's just go back to the word moed. What does it mean? One of four words that we translate as Sabbath, festivals, party, and resting. When I learned this, I remember thinking, those are different things. But the more I've studied it, I think I've learned they're actually explaining different aspects of the same thing. Pete Scazzaro describes Sabbath like this. He says, Biblical Sabbath is a 24-hour period where we stop working, we enjoy rest, we practice delight, and we contemplate God. So let's break each one of those down. To stop in Sabbath means that we set aside an entire day to cease working, paid and unpaid. How many of you, your anxiety just spiked? You're like, that's impossible. We can't do that. We can't stop working, right? Thank you for the one person that was honest enough to raise your hand. It makes us anxious, doesn't it? But this is where we stop and we embrace our limits and say, oh, that's right. You've created it all. You've created me. You, you're going to do this with or without me. You probably have a better person picked out for my job than me. So I'm just going to rest in what you have and enjoy where I am for right now. So we stop from all paid and unpaid work. And that leads to rest and Sabbath means that we follow God's example of what he did on the seventh day where he rested and so for some of us that might mean that we sleep in and we take a nap later that day it might mean that we take a walk or read a book or enjoy good food or hang out with people and that leads to delighting in sabbath which means that we follow god's example of enjoying creation what did god say after he created man and woman in his image and likeness he said that was cool huh he says that was very good it's a it's a statement of delight and so here's my question, what brings you joy and what brings you delight? For some of us it might be hiking or biking. It might be cooking or reading or just hanging out. One of my favorite Sabbath activities is mountain biking, preferably with friends and my boys. I love it and I don't like to just like ride a little bit. I like to ride hard. I like to wear my body out. It's a good thing for me physically. But I also know people that love to garden. It's, re- it's refreshing for them. I know of a person that likes to mow their grass on Sabbath, not because of the work aspect. It's actually relaxing for them. It's mindless. They enjoy mowing their grass. They enjoy the straight lines and the, the patterns they can make. Resting and delighting in Sabbath does not mean that you can't exert yourself. It means that you find something that you can do that recharges your body and your heart. In your mind, And all of that leads us to contemplating God and Sabbath, which means we draw near to God through things like silence and solitude, simplicity, and slowing down. John Mark Comer has a, an amazing book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I would highly recommend this book, and he, he has a chapter on each one of those things I just mentioned. I love how Pete Scazzaro summarizes this. He says, Sabbath is a day to see the invisible in the visible. It's a day to recognize the hidden ways God's goodness is at work all around us by intentionally enjoying the grandeur of his creation in things like nature and people and art and food and hobbies and in music. And so this doesn't mean that all you do on a Sabbath day is read the Bible and pray and isolate yourself from people. You might need that on occasion, but what it does mean is that you contemplate God, you enjoy the goodness of his creation and you, you, you pray for eyes to see him everywhere you look. So can you see why this is so valuable to us? Can you see why this is God's gift to us? Can you see why this is God expressing his love to us? He doesn't say, go work hard. He says, rest with me. And then I'll work with you in a little bit. I like how John Mark Comer summarizes the value of Sabbath. He says, when we fight against the work six days, Sabbath one day rhythm, we go against the grain of the universe and we go against the grain of the universe, you're guaranteed to get splinters. And I think we're all walking around with splinters and shrapnel in us from working and working and working and working and working and working and not finding our value in who God is. We're so busy making bricks to make ourselves feel better that we're splintered. In his divine wisdom, God incorporated this Sabbath rhythm into creation for our benefit, because he wants you to know this is not your value. Your value is in who I tell you you are, and I love you, and I've gifted you, I've empowered you in some way to make creation better, but I need you, I want you, I've created you to rest with me first. So how do we do this? Where where do we begin? Well, I want to say this. For starters, it's more than sleeping in and it's more than a nap. And it's more than taking a long weekend or getting out of town for a vacation. Embracing the sacred rhythm of Sabbath is God's invitation to leave the slavery of brickmaking behind us. And learning to practice Sabbath rest is God's way of helping us discover our value in his eyes on his terms. It's our way to hear his voice and to see how he values us and how he loves us. Now, I'm gonna be honest with you and admit, I'm learning how to do this. I did not even know know about, I'm 44, I I learned about this concept when I was 42. And over the last year or so, I've tried really hard to incorporate it. And sometimes I've done really well and I'm refreshed and my family would say, you're so much fun to be around. But other times I get out of rhythm and my coworkers and my friends and my family are like, why don't you go somewhere and get away from the rest of us? Cause you are not fun. It's not an easy thing, but here's the one thing, here's a pro tip I'll give you. You have to start somewhere. You've just gotta start somewhere. And so maybe for some of us this week, you need to make a verbal commitment and say, I'm not gonna let work on me anymore. I'm gonna go home at a reasonable hour and I'm gonna have dinner with my family or my friends on a regular basis so that I can reconnect with humanity and be reminded that my work is just work. It'll be there tomorrow. One of the ways that I feel like God wants me to practice this is to practice what he does at the the end of every day of creation. He said, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. How many days do you leave work and think it is not good? It's all, there's a mountain right there. I don't even know what I did today. Well, when I can say it's good, I've learned, you know what I've got, I've, done the best with what I had today. Didn't go the way I planned. There's a whole bunch of work waiting tomorrow, but it's good. I could die on the way home and God's going to send Genesis somebody else to be the campus pastor in Carmel and it'll be fine. Will I be missed? Sure. But God's got it all spinning anyway. So practice saying, it's good, God, I trust you. You're going to fill in all the gaps. You've been doing it all along. But maybe for some of us, it's not just work. It's the fact that we don't know how to sit still and we run and we bounce and we go because we're afraid to miss out. We're afraid to fall behind or we're trying to catch up or we're afraid that people are gonna think we're lazy or we're lame. That's brick building. That's other people's perception. That's not what God teaches us in Genesis one. Embracing the sacred rhythm of Sabbath is resting, ceasing work so that we can enjoy rest, practice delight, and contemplate God. But here's another fascinating aspect of Sabbath that maybe you haven't thought about. I think it's a picture of salvation that's found in Jesus. If you look at the creation poem, there's no evening and morning on the seventh day. It extends into the rest of eternity. It's God's way of saying, I've got it all under control. Rest in me first, we'll work later. It's the same thing we see in Jesus. Jesus says, I will die in your place. I've died in your place. I've paid for your sins. I've done the thing for you that you can't do. I love you this much. Your father loves you this much. Trust in me. Find life in me. Rest in me. When Jesus invites us to have eternal life, I think he's saying, enjoy the eternal Sabbath with your father. And so for those of us that have never surrendered to Jesus, Jesus' offer is your sins will be forgiven. You will be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. You will be adopted into his family. You'll be a part of this amazing thing called the church. He will empower you with gifts that you never knew that you had so that you can rest with him first and work with him later. That is the rhythm God is going for in our life. So, as we wrap up this morning, I want to challenge you if you're a follower of Jesus and you're not practicing this rhythm, you're missing out. And you're probably teaching your kids and your grandkids and your future generations hey, get really good at making bricks. And that's not what God is telling us. So I wanna challenge you to find a way to make this a reality. But if you're not following Jesus, you could practice Sabbath and you might get a little physically refreshed, but you will miss out on an eternal rest that Jesus has in store for you. And I wanna invite you today to take a step in your relationship in getting to know him and follow him today. Let's pray. Father, we, I, I'm so thankful for, for your word, the gift of your word, the brilliance of your word. You have created this creation poem to be an amazing literary work that tells us that in your divine wisdom, you have created all that there is. And in your authority, you've said, I want you to rest with me first so that we can work together later. Would you help us to embrace this rhythm? Would you help us to fight against the narrative that we have to build these bricks? You have led us to freedom in Christ. Would you help us to embrace it? Would you help us to see it in our children and our grandchildren and to speak rest and Sabbath into them by modeling it? Would you help us to say, it's good. It'll be there tomorrow. It's good. It's fine. It's good. Help us to work hard to bring glory to your name, but to rest in you first. That's the rhythm that you have for us. And I wanna pray for my friends that are here or listening that have not yet surrendered to you, Jesus. I wanna pray that you would do for them the same thing that you did for me. Where you spoke to my heart one day and you said, Jerry, I'm waiting on you. I'm waiting on you to respond to me. Will you respond today? Help them to hear your voice clearly and to respond to you in faith. Help them to take a next step by finding me or Ben Krause or someone at the blue tent and saying, I want to follow Jesus. Where do I begin? Jesus, I'm thankful that our eternal Sabbath rest is found in you and in you alone. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.